0: Kent, you're dismissed for Gospel Project. We hope you have a great time, and thanks to the adults who are leading them. If you're new with us today, we're going through paragraph by paragraph of a book in the Bible called Philippians, so turn with me there. We are halfway through the book. I thought that would get a little bit of reaction. There we go. We're halfway through the book, so we're at Philippians chapter 3. Today, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. Feel free to look up Philippians in the Table of Contents and then take that home with you. Read ahead uh, for next week. So, Philippians 3. I'm going to read a fairly long section, um, 11 verses, and then we'll jump into it together. Philippians 3, verse 1. My brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Now, what's up with Kent praying about dogs, and now we're reading about dogs? This is weird. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? That I may know him and the power of the resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If you're new to the Bible, you're in for a treat today. This passage we just read is one of the most famous sections of the entire Bible. It's famous partly because it gets down to the very heart of what Christianity actually is. Christianity is leaving something inferior for someone far superior. Let me say that again. Christianity is leaving something inferior for someone far superior. Our hope today is that whether you're hearing this passage for the very first time, or perhaps even if you've had it memorized for years, Our prayer is that God would set your heart ablaze with a passion for Him, for Jesus. Philippians 3 was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by a guy named the Apostle Paul. Paul was a highly educated Jewish scholar in the first century. And in this part of the book, he's warning a church, the church at Philippi, not to get tricked by the message of false teachers. And he refers to them as dogs. Wow. Uh, We are right next to a major university, so many of us are exposed often to the world of scholarship. I've had the opportunity to get to know quite a few scholars over the years. Paul was one of those, and I'm not referring to simply a tenured professor, but I mean a scholar. Those standout, brilliant, top of their class, Everyone's reading the books that they write kind of people. That's the kind of guy Paul was. Those of you who are interacting with a scholar right now, perhaps in a class, you know that scholars are usually incredibly precise, measured people, right? They understand the nuances of language that the rest of us, that just goes right over our heads. They're often particular, careful even cautious, we might say, until they've taken an idea and looked at it from every single angle, making sure they understand the whole thing. Scholars don't flippantly say anything. They make every word count. Now, that's part of what makes Philippians 3 such a shock is that Paul was that kind of guy. This brilliant scholar uses a word in this chapter that often the Bibles it's that the translators of the Bible will try to clean up for us. I guess they think we can't handle it. It's the word rubbish. Look at verse 8. There's a phrase in verse 8 that says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish is the Greek word. That's what Paul would have written this in. Skubalon. So Turn to your neighbor and say, "Skubalon." It's not a fun word. You're going to like it even more when you know what it means. Scubalon is the Greek word for feces or poop or excrement. Now, I'm not looking for shock value here. I just want you to understand what Paul's actually saying. Paul is saying, I have encountered someone so great that when I think about everything else in my life prior to knowing him, it's a heaping pile. It's shocking. Paul encountered someone of surpassing worth. So infinite was the value of knowing this someone that he claimed everything else in his life was scubalot. Now, verses 8 and 9 give the contrast. It's knowing Christ Jesus, being found in him, having his righteousness is of surpassing worth. That everything else? Everything Paul had based his life on prior to coming to know Jesus was simply rubbish. Now, that's such a striking, shocking claim that we're going to slow down a little bit and spend the next two weeks just looking at this section. We're going to do that through asking three questions together. First, what is it that Paul gave up? He says he gave all of it up. What is he talking about? second we're going to consider why he did that and then finally next week we'll talk about is there any chance of us having the same experience did paul experience something that's accessible to you and i so those are three things we'll consider over the next two weeks but first let's look at what did paul give up what did paul give up Um, I think we'll have a great time doing this together. Paul came face to face with a truth so powerful he said he let go of everything else he held dear. And we'll look at briefly what he says he gave up, but really it can be summarized in one word. That word is righteousness. Maybe you heard it in multiple songs we sung together today. Paul gave up what he thought of as making him righteous. Righteous. Now, Unless you're a seminary student, we have a bunch of you here. We're thankful for you. But your temptation will be to try to impress people with big words. This is one of those words, righteousness. Unless you're in theological school or you're using the word in a pejorative sense. Isn't she righteous? This is likely not a word that comes up in everyday conversation. However, righteousness is our deepest need. It's our deepest need. Righteousness is what drives everything we do every day of our lives. And if you misunderstand where righteousness comes from, there are disastrous consequences. Because there's a real thing, there's real righteousness, and then there's a whole bunch of phony, fake senses of righteousness. So let's read a portion of this again together and see if we can get a sense of it. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision... Now, that's odd, right? Yes? Paul is saying, these group of false teachers are presenting to you ideas that sound right, but they're actually phony. They're not real righteousness. We are the real thing. The ones who have not have had a piece of our flesh cut off, but have had our hearts cut and been given new ones. That's all he's saying. For real the, we are the real thing, who worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on to this long list of things that he's given up. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to a zeal a persecutor of the church, Here's that word again as to righteousness under the law blameless do you see what he's doing he's giving his resume he's giving his resume and it is an impressive one now what is a resume it's a list of your accomplishments paul's saying here's where i was educated here are my awards and my accolades here's where i've worked Here's my trophies and my ribbons. Here's why everyone else who has ever met me should be in awe of my greatness. That is his list. Now you and I use resumes too, don't we? A resume is your boasting about yourself in order to get in. That's what a resume is for. Paul's resume is a beast. Now, if you were a Jewish scholar in the first century, you could have had no better resume. This was the example, the model, the very best it could possibly be. Now, there's a fascinating amount of history and theological significance in the things that Paul lists. Perhaps some week we'll spend time walking through each of them and giving the background to them. But today I just want to give you the, the point of emphasis that he's making. He's really saying two things about himself he's talking about his heritage, and he's talking about his accomplishments. His heritage, meaning Paul was of pure Jewish line. And his accomplishments, he did everything he was supposed to have done. So in a very short amount of phrases, he says, I'm the best that there could possibly be. It's rather arrogant, isn't it? It's okay to read something in the Bible and say, that's rather arrogant. It is. Paul was from the very best stock, born into purity. And then boastfully, he built on that through his own personal accomplishments. I wonder about you. When you draft your resume and you pass it along, do you emphasize your heritage? So where you're from, who you've come from, who you know, who's invested into you? Or do you focus on your accomplishments? What you've studied, how high your GPA is, where you've worked, what awards you've been given? Paul hits us with both. All of us do this. We have to. You see, we are image bearers, not creators. And what that means is we're mirrors. So we're constantly holding up something in order to give us a sense of being worthwhile people. Paul held up his heritage and his accomplishments. He's saying, This is where I used to get my righteousness, from what I came from and from what I've accomplished. Now, back to that word, righteousness. What is it? Again, not a word we use very often. I think, frankly, it's one of those churchy words we may have just stood and sung about without knowing what it actually means. That's understandable if it's not a word in our normal vernacular. Righteousness, though, is measuring up. It's meeting the standard. It's being right. At the most basic level, righteousness is being just as one should be. Righteousness is being just as one should be. Friends, righteousness is likely the very thing you've been striving for over the last seven days since we last saw each other. Some of us are trying to get it through the family we were born into. Look at my heritage. I'm great because of them, so I'm in. We're a church with lots of kids and youth. Kids, teenagers. You are likely looking for righteousness in who you're friends with. Are you in the popular crowd or are you an outcast? That's likely where you get your sense of being in. Senior adults. You may be tempted to feel as though your days of being in are long gone. There's a great temptation as we age to think we've passed the very best days of our lives. We used to have it, but not anymore. Tremendous temptation there. Some of us think that the way we look or the amount of pleasure we get is what gets us in. But whatever your particular version of this, all of us do it. We have to. It's impossible not to. It is as natural as breathing air. Where are you finding your sense of righteousness? Well, Paul was on the hunt too. And what this paragraph tells us is that this brilliant scholar, highly educated, tremendously accomplished, who had all the right points on his resume, he thought he was at the very pinnacle of life, that he reached a point of saying, it's all scuba on." Now, we don't know exactly how old he was when he had this encounter with Christ, but well into his adult years, maybe 35, 40, 45, can you imagine being 45 years old and realizing everything I've built my life on? I was wrong. That'd be startling, wouldn't it? But don't misunderstand me. Your resume is not simply about you getting the next job you want. That fancy paper you put it on, all the margins exactly right, that's about far more than a job. Your resume is about your sense of righteousness. What have you done that will get you in? Paul counted on these things not just to get him into heaven, not just to get him the job he wanted, not just to be around the people he wanted, not just to be thought of the way he wanted to be thought of. It's deeper than that. Your resume is your list of things that give you that internal sense that you've arrived. Again, we might not realize it, but we do this all the time. Uh, high school students, you are constantly being pushed to get the best grades possible. So. There's almost a sense in which, as a freshman in high school, if I don't make straight A's, if I'm not in every club, if I'm not excelling in everything my hand touches, then I'm going to end up stuck living in mom's basement. And so kids put in the amount of work that it used to be normal for an adult to put in to their work. It's crazy. Why? Why, when most of your brain power is being used up by puberty, do you force yourself to work that hard? Well, it's because of righteousness. So you run yourself into the ground only to get to college and start over again. College students, you just chuckled. Many of you are driven to excel way past what's normal. You've got to get a 4.0, you've got to be a part of Barrett, or you won't get into the job you want. You'll be stuck alone. You'll live on the streets. Why? It's not just about grades. It's not just about what you wear, or what dorm you're in, or what shape your body is in, or if you have a boyfriend or girlfriend. In college, everyone is always sizing up everyone else. That is the essence of college. Why? You don't want to get left out. You're searching for a sense of righteousness. Eventually, you'll graduate, get a job, maybe get married, perhaps have kids. And then what happens? What happens? suddenly this little ball of flesh becomes your sense of righteousness. So if this child isn't safe or if they're not successful, then I'm a complete loser. And the foolish cycle of self-righteousness simply starts winding itself over again. This is the stuff of life, all of us. Now, here's the crazy thing. At some level, you and I are aware. Maybe we don't ever voice this, But somewhere deep inside, don't we know the world isn't right? It's not working? And so this whole game, maybe it doesn't work too? Remember one of our definitions of righteousness a moment ago, being just as one should be. Friends, the world is not as it's supposed to be. Just days ago, Hurricane Matthew killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in Haiti and then merely a short plane ride north in Florida. only killed a few people. Why? Money. Haitians live in poor places where the buildings can't stand the storm. Americans live in wealthy buildings where the people can't stand the storm. The world is not as it should be. In less than six weeks, a, either a womanizer or a liar will become the president of the United States. I'm not kidding. This is where we are. The world's not as it should be. Roughly a fifth of us in this room, so one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. Roughly every fifth person sitting here today has been sexually abused. The world's not as it should be. Aleppo is a humanitarian disaster, but we let it keep going and going and going and going and going. Why? Because there's no oil in Syria. Within one block of where we sit right now, there are homeless people begging for food, while on the same street are people sitting in half a million dollar homes, gorging themselves because they have too much. Don't we know the world's not the way it's supposed to be? But neither are we. Don't you know deep down inside that something's wrong with you? We may watch with horror the ridiculous things Donald Trump said on a bus over a decade ago. But what if every conversation you've had, the very worst of them were being blasted in the media? What if your motives for the good things you've done in the last week were exposed? What if your worst thoughts about your boss or spouse or teacher or roommate were unleashed on links? Friends, the world's not the way it's supposed to be, but it's because we're not the way we're supposed to be. Now here's where righteousness comes in. In a sense, self-righteousness, the stuff of our flesh, is our attempt to deal with this. It's our attempt to try to make ourselves feel better about being in a place that's so messed up. So apart from God, our resumes are our attempts at an internal sense that I'm not the way I'm supposed to be and I've got to fix it. So I'm going to look to who I know and where I'm from, or I'm going to look to what I've accomplished or what I look like. Now, we do this in dramatically different ways. One of the articles we read in Disciple Makers, the first semester, every time, is written by a guy named Tim Keller. It's called uh, The Centrality of the Gospel. You could find it online. I encourage you to Google it. I don't know. It's seven, eight pages. Take you 25, 30 minutes to read. One of the most important things you could ever read. What he does is he says, all of us are looking for righteousness, but we do it in ways that look very different from each other. One of those ways is what he calls irreligion. Some of us deal with our sense that we're not right by jumping headlong into sin. So we get crazy and do as many crazy things as we can possibly think of. We deal with the fact that we don't feel right on the inside by making sure we do all the stuff on the outside that we know it isn't right. That's irreligion. We run from and reject God and just do whatever the heck we want. Those of us in the room that are predisposed to that are those that see stop signs as suggestions, right? There are some of us that every rule is there for everybody else. But for me, if I feel like it, I'll do that. If not... I'm going to do whatever I want to do. That, our personalities come out in that way. We reject God, we do what we want to do, and then we brag about it. That's irreligion. That's a way of dealing with a sense of being unrighteous. But the other way, you might be less familiar with, because we don't, we don't pick on it as much. But it's the one that's in this passage. It's religion. At first glance, it seems like religious or moralistic people are doing the exact opposite of irreligious people. And in one sense, they are. Because they don't run from the rules. Instead, they run to the rules. Religious people often look better spiritually. They go to church, they read their Bibles, they don't sleep around. They don't look at porn somewhere anybody else would know. They didn't get hammered yesterday but they're no better, because we count on external behaviors to try to fix something internal, and that doesn't work. Pat, you had open heart how long ago? 18 months? Is it 12 months? 10 months, that was close. <laughs> 10 months ago, Pat had, was it five? Four? four. <laughs> it gets better every time I tell it. <laughs> <clears throat> Pat had four What's it called, Jill? What? Cabbage? Cabbage. All I heard was... (laughs) Thanks, Pat. Pat had quadruple bypass. There we go. Now, Pat was going to die if he didn't get that done. What would we say if Pat had gone to the doctor and the doctor said, here's a Band-Aid, and put it right there? That's idiotic. But, friends, those of you in the room who lean into rules, not because you love God and you want to express that obedience to Him out of, out of a passion for the fact that He saved you, but because it makes you look better than other people, and it puts your little nice life into a box. Everything feels right. You're putting a Band-Aid over a spiritual problem that needs open-heart surgery. So whether it's irreligion or religion, we end up in the same place. Paul was the religious guy. Don't you see, though, that we're all desperately living our lives for some sense of being okay, of being all right, of fitting in, of measuring up, of being accepted, of sitting down on the inside? It is absolutely impossible to not try to do that. Some of us do it by intentionally avoiding God, but others use the things of God, not for God, but for ourselves. Neither one of them work because they don't give genuine righteousness. Now, what did Paul give up? Back to our question. You may have been wondering if I was going to come back there. What did Paul give up? Well, he gave up his heritage and his personal accomplishments. He gave up everything he counted on to make him right with God. He said, He said, all of that religion that I devoted my life to, it's all on. My entire sense of self, success, and religion was a lie. It didn't work. I was wrong. He's saying I looked like the perfect definition of somebody right. And yet I could not have been further away. Now why? Why would he give that up? Well, that's our second question. Why did he give this up? Paul gave his impressive resume of self-righteousness because verse 8 says, God chose to give him someone far better. And this is the best possible news. Paul found that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness he'd been striving for can't be earned through religion. And it can't be avoided through irreligion. It's got to be given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you see, becoming as we should be, as we were created to be, is fundamentally impossible for you and I. Because we're spiritually dead, we're bound in sin. We have an internal heart problem that can't be fixed with external band-aids. The righteousness we all want must be given to us by God. Paul had an experience with God that he said changed everything. And then he said, everything else in comparison, in this impressive resume, it's all a pile of poop. The Bible calls this the gospel. And it's infinitely better than any attempt to escape God in irreligion or to impress people with religion. Now next week, we'll look deeply at this question, but We've got to just at least mention it. May we have this same experience Paul had. In other words, Paul, this incredibly, incredibly gifted man who reached the very pinnacle of what the religious people of his day told him to do to be right with God. And yet he had an encounter with God so sweet, so powerful, so convincing, that he went to promote the very thing he was trying to end. Is that experience with God, is something like that accessible to you and to me? We'll talk about that next week. But in the meantime, I would ask you believers, so Christians in the room, are you enjoying God's gift of righteousness that's been just handed to you, a free gift You did nothing to earn it. The only thing you brought to that moment was your sin. Jesus brought everything else. Are you walking in, nurturing, watering, rejoicing in that gift? Or have you foolishly slipped back into your own sense of self-righteousness? worth considering and then talking to a friend about. And unbelievers in the room, so those of you not yet convinced of Christ, would you consider this verse in Romans? This is another book written by the same guy. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I wonder if you'd read that with me. God what does that mean? It means that however far gone you are in irreligion, or however close you thought you have been through religion, both leave you helpless. And yet Christ died. Christ died so that your unrighteousness could be exchanged for His righteousness. The gospel is the scandalous truth that because Jesus died, his death can count as yours and his life can count as yours. So we hope you'll stick around and let us tell you more about this Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, this passage is dramatic, shocking, scandalous. That a religious man who, from the outside, was the kind of person we all would aspire to look like and be like, extremely accomplished, and yet he reached the point of saying, It's nothing because he had the experience of being one and saved by Jesus Christ himself. God, I pray that we would be a church that counts not on our own righteousness as a church, but constantly and solely on Jesus Christ. I pray that my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here today, that they would consider deeply, am I walking in the gift of being right with God, because God's given that to me? Or have I slipped back into taking advantage of the gospel and trying to impress people with my works? Or thinking I can just run into sin and it doesn't matter, because God saved me anyway. Father, I pray where there is need among Christians for brokenness, that it would fall now and it would fall heavy. So that then, Lord, there could be the experience that your kindness leads us to repentance. And that as we end a little early today, that brothers and sisters in Christ would sit and visit with each other. I have failed the gospel in this way. Would you pray with me? God, I pray there be dozens and dozens and dozens of those kinds of conversations. We also pray, Lord, obviously for people here who are not yet convinced of the Bible, the Christian message. Father, I know because I was one that irreligion doesn't work. And religion doesn't work. It can't lastingly fix the brokenness inside. It's just putting a band-aid on what needs open-heart surgery. So i pray, Father, for those in the room who are not yet Christians, that you, through your gospel, through your scriptures, through friends, would open eyes and hearts that people might see you for who you are. We pray for salvation. In Jesus' name.